Hello, welcome back to Spotlight, the monthly podcast that discusses pertinent issues to child health, with guests to make you think about areas not usually explored. I'm Rachel Ekbeko, Senior Editor of Archives of Disease and Childhood, and this is ADC Spotlight. Today I'm speaking with Dr. Bob Phillips, or even Professor Bob Phillips. He is an honorary consultant in paediatric and TYA, that is, teenage and young adults oncology at the Leeds Teaching Hospitals and a professor of paediatrics and evidence synthesis at the University of Hull and Hull York Medical School. He is also the Archimedes editor for ADC. Welcome Bob and thank you for giving your time. Thank you. Really great to be here and, uh, and, and lovely to be invited Rachel. It's great to chat about uh, oncologically things on these podcasts. You're not the first actually. Um, we spoke about MRIs and oncological uh, issues, brain MRIs, uh, a while ago. So uh, oncology, absolute major issue uh, in our uh, paediatric population, uh, both for morbidity and thankfully less so mortality, although that is still a, still a case. So very mm. important, I think, to go through. But I, I just wondered, before we discuss the paper, uh, the paper's called Role of Urine Culture in Paediatric Cancer Patients with Fever and Neutropenia, a prospect of observational study by Dr. Jose Antonio Alonso Cardenas and others. I just wondered whether you might tell us about maybe your biases when 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 reading this this paper. And obviously you're an expert at paediatric hemoncology and evidence-based medicine. Um, but how does this way of thinking influence you looking at this paper and, and what might be missed by doing so? Uh, yeah, that's a really interesting question, sort of first look in the mirror type thing. First take your own pulse. Uh, yeah. So I come to this having been involved in a lot of the guidelines, the clinical practice guidelines that have been created around febrile neutropenia. And pulling together in the past little tiny bits of study around about whether you should or shouldn't be testing the urine um, when kids come in with a fever and they have a potential neutropenia. And so I, I, I guess I arrived at this paper with a, a not fully systematic, but, but, a, but a wide ranging reading around this area that, that I was mm, pretty much coming in with a thought that it's not really that useful. But these were only little studies. Uh, so, so maybe I'm, I'm a bit more minded to agree with it and, and look for the positives in it um, than perhaps I would be if I was coming from a, a, a very um, pro-urine culture perspective. And, and it is, I think you're right, I think it's really worthwhile to think where, where am I at? And if this was telling me a different answer, would I be picking at the methodological elements in a harsher way? And, and, and in, indeed, that's sort of the structure of where we do the evidence-based medicine thing, where, where first you ask your question, then you appraise the study. And when you're doing the appraisal, it's that, that stuff about does it apply to my population, can I use it here, should come at the end of your questions. So, so you're not you're not predisposing yourself to want this thing to happen because it fits with your population. So, yeah, I, I think I came to it with a, a positive uh, and hopeful frame of mind on the basis of the stuff that I already knew. Mm. Right. That's really interesting, Bob. Um, and, and I'm not sure that any of us, when we read a 
paper do a, a sense check of the way you've just described to then go and read read the paper. But it's, I think it's key that we do so prior to reading uh, the paper uh, because we might get ourselves in all kinds of rabbit holes and yeah. uh, if if we don't but mm. but let's mm. let's let's see this let's look at the paper so mm. so let's just start with what the what the authors set out to do yeah so i think very sensibly they came in with a with a solid clinical question is there a benefit of doing urine studies so urine dip and sending it away for culture and stuff in kids that come in with febrile neutropenia as i say the guidelines had sort of been hinting towards the potential lack of utility on this and i think that's that's what drove it in the first place so they got a couple of hospitals together um in the 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 sort of the period of time that that spanned the first sort of big global wave of the pandemic and looked to see when a kid came in with febrile neutropenia and agreed and had their urine tested, what was it that uh, was going to be found in doing this? Um, and they pulled together a fair few, 205 patients in total, using both that element of uh, the urinalysis, the sort of dipstick type thing, but also sending it away for urine culture. And in this setting, the, a UTI uh, is a positive urine culture in the presence of signs or symptoms, and there's maybe an element of that that we could pick on in a second, but you don't need pyuria. You don't need white cells in the urine. Um, and I think that's really important when you're looking at febrile neutropenics. Neutropenia is, by definition, going to be low levels of white cells, below uh, 0.5 on the neutrophils usually. Uh, and, and the lower you get, in a sense, the fewer you've got left over to spill into uh, the urine. Uh, and so we've known for a while that, that white cells themselves aren't that helpful when you ain't got that many in your body. Uh, and a key part of, of modifying the standard definition in order to make it relevant to this particular population. Yeah, that makes sense. If you don't have it, you can't give it. Mm. So that's the that's the outline of the paper. So before we go into that a bit deeper, could you briefly say what they what they found? Yeah. So of the the two hundred and five, they only found seven patients where the urine culture was positive and of those seven only two of them had urinary symptoms um, which leads to with their definitions a positive culture in about three and a half percent and a UTI because of that presence that they needed of symptoms of only one percent which is it itself is really very low and it's actually if you took that as a whole you'd be thinking is that so low that there really is hardly any point in testing for it at all. But quite sensibly, they'd set up to think, is this different in different groups of patients? So, for example, those patients that had urinary symptoms, was there a greater chance of having a urinary tract infection? Or those where oncologically or, or for other reasons, congenitally, they'd had the urinary tract abnormalities of some sort, were they more likely um, to have a UTI? And, and just like common sense would, would suggest, they found that that's the case. 
there was a greater proportion, up to around about a quarter of patients that came in who either had symptoms or had some issue uh, regarding the urinary tract compared to those that didn't have a slightly dodgy urinary tract and came in without any symptoms at all. And in that group, it was down at the 1% level. They then went on and produced from this things like sensitivity and specificity and things like that. But they're not of that much value when we're thinking about the practicalities of it for the way that we are considering using or interpreting this message. Hmm. What I'm hearing for you there, um, Bob, is that you know it's not one size fits all. So there is a research question or a clinical question that we could answer by hmm. uh, research. And then you still have to think about your population, your subgroups. So does it apply to all of them or maybe not so much? Uh, do you have to add in risk factors and what might they be? And in this setting, uh, it's about you know, are they at higher risk of a UTI or a urinary tract infection? Absolutely. Uh, and I think that that's a, a really sensible approach by the authors they're accepting the clinical reality of the situation and, and thinking about it as clinical researchers, which sometimes if you run things off a, a pre-existing protocol that doesn't take into account the actual nature of life, uh, you end up with an answer that might be correct, but it's not right. And and this lot have, have worked well with the the way that things actually are in order to give us a sensible answer. Mm, so real world. Mm. So we have to talk about evidence. <laughs> Absolutely. So, so real world evidence, you've got it, here we go. Where would you class this level of evidence that this paper has produced? Yeah, that's tricky because I've got two really conflicting parts of me coming forwards to answer that. One wants to leap to the the sort of the old-fashioned way of thinking about it, and this is a prospectively constructed study. It's looking at risk factors. It's going forwards. It's a, a, a well-defined cohort, so it, it sits somewhere in the 1B range using that, that turn of the millennium level of thinking about it. And the other side fights against now the use of levels of evidence. And and just to just just to briefly go over that, the levels of evidence concept that that some studies are better than others, I, th I think, still has some validity. It's certainly when you come in fresh and you think all of science is the same. It's really helpful to sort of layer things out and say, well, some things are more likely to be true because of the nature of the study design than others. But the very simplistic sort of link between if you do a study this way, it will give you this gold star answer just isn't right. You've got to play in actually how well was the study conducted because it could have a design that's labelled something, but if it's done appallingly, then then it shouldn't keep that label. You, you've got to think even if it's got a design which might have some issues of bias in it, if they've done all they can to reduce those issues, if the result that you're seeing is actually in opposition to the biases, if it's an enormously big difference that they're demonstrating or showing with a precise answer because of the sheer numbers or the, the variability factors that are going in, those things you've got to then think about lifting um, the way you believe that evidence. 
And so, so whilst you've you've got the levels as a start, there's there's a, a, a an understanding I think has emerged over the last ten years or so that the subtleties of why levels don't work can be expressed and understood. Uh, and in the world of guidelines creation, clinical practice guidelines creation, the grade system actually outlines this really nicely about le- levels of evidence in a sense are, are your, only your starting point. And then you wiggle them around with the other bits that play into things to come up with a, a more nuanced sort of understanding of how good this paper is and how likely it is to be true. Bearing all that in mind, actually sort of answering the question you asked in the first place, I think this is pretty good stuff. This is the right sort of paper. It's prospectively conducted data. It's got uh, very clear definitions of what is the exposure and the outcomes. It's got a reasonable approach to describing the precision of those outcomes and and for, for clinical purposes, those, those sort of precisions that they're coming out with sit within the same place in your decision-making curve. So, for example, it might be that something is so imprecise that if the result was at one end of the confidence interval, you would do a thing, and if it was at the other end of the confidence interval, you absolutely would not do a thing. And when something is that imprecise, it really doesn't help you. Here, sort of regardless of where the truth is within a confidence interval, it still tells you the same thing qualitatively. It still gives you the same answer. So all of those bits go together to make this a really good quality paper that we can take away and think about uh, converting into clinical practice. Is there going to be any stronger evidence? Is this is this going to be as good as it gets? Yeah, I, I think I'm I'm sort of contractually obliged to say um, that evidence synthesis is better than any one study on its own. Um, but even if I wasn't employed um, by people that did that for a living, I still think it's true. Uh, Whilst this is good on its own, um, if it was the only bit of evidence out there with only seven positive cultures in it, you'd be thinking, hmm, just seven people to make an entire decision on. That doesn't feel like a lot. Um, and so, so I think what we need to do is get stronger evidence by bringing together other data sets, um, producing a, a piece of evidence synthesis, a systematic review, something that, that draws all of the information that we can together to be, to be really sure that what we're seeing is congruent with the other data that's out there in the world and maybe come up with an even more convincing overall answer and and maybe get this sort of subgroup definition of who actually does need the testing versus who doesn't uh, bottomed out a little bit more clearly. Beyond this, we could potentially look to see if people have already accidentally been collecting this data because they've been auditing their febrile neutropenia work uh, and pulling together those data sets and adding to this um, to supplement uh, and take it further. Um, But I think that that's where we're at now. I think we're at the point of, of we need to bring it all together and decide, have we truly got enough to get an answer to this? In which case, let's stop wasting effort. We've got something that's firm enough to definitively um, take a step further on or fine-tuning it and going, we know that for kids without any sort of urinary problem, you do not need to test. But what about the ones that do? 
can we fiddle that around a bit more um, so we can select out the ones that really, really need testing within that group versus the ones that don't? So it might be we we narrow the research question rather than throw everything to do with and febrile neutropenia out the window. That's, uh, that's fair enough. I, I think it comes then close to you know, does one sit on the fence in terms of changing practice or does one say, well, it's good enough for me. Uh, we need to have a look at the way we treat children with um, febrile neutropenia when they come through the door uh, in terms of assessing them. And uh, we're going to rewrite uh, what it is that we currently do. Where do you, where do you think we are there? Um, I, I mean, as, as I say, I, I sort of came into this thinking urinary cultures are a bit of a waste of time most of the time. Um, and and this, is, this has sort of solidified my thinking there. Um, and I'm... I'm thinking that if we if we can produce a, a decent bit of evidence synthesis that pulls all of this together, we're, we should be getting out there if if this really is congruent with what I remember. And, and we should be stopping doing this because it's a dead simple test, yes. It's not horribly expensive. It's not a whole body MRI scan with general anaesthesia. But it's so much hassle for everybody involved. And particularly if you've got a little one that isn't weeing for you, that isn't doing the wee, but somebody is insisting that they get this wee sample off you as a parent, you might be feeling incredibly guilty that you've just let it drop on the floor or it's not happening. And and that stress, on top of the stress of being brought in for the however many of time it is because of a fever, in a kid with cancer, in a, ca- a family, with all already a higher level of stresses and costs uh, on board if we can just take away something that is pointless and and really just adds guilt and burden to people then we're getting the benefit there rather than in the direct savings for the nhs um, itself or whatever healthcare system you work in thanks thanks bob so that's quite nice that you relate to the families as well. So it's not just about whether there's, there's a serious underlying infection with this child. This child is um, part of a, of a wider system, their, their family, who, as you say, is already stressed. So why would you add harms to that? Why, why would you add morbidity uh, into, that, uh, into that family? And uh, I'm not too sure that a urine dipstick or a, a, a urine analysis, I should say, is that simple because you're also, after you've actually got the sample, you need to wait for the answers uh, and it is not immediate. So taking all that into consideration, could you describe what maybe the harms might be um, that, that we could be preventing by uh, stop doing unnecessary urine analysis? Yeah, so I, I think the uh, amount of hassle it is for, particularly for the younger uh, end of the market, to to take and to assess um, a urine sample at every time they come back in again with a fever and suspected neutropenia will be one harm that will be taken away. Another might be of the the contaminated sample, um, so the one with a light growth of something that then leads to an extra course of antibiotics just in case, um, and then a, a sort of a labelling that this kid has had urinary tract infections and the potential knock-on for that, thinking about the child in a different way, somebody that has problems. 
in addition to all the other problems that they may have. And the additional potentially imaging um, that you would do if a, a positive UTI was found. To be fair, that's moderately minimal in uh, the febrile neutropenia group because many of them will have already had fairly extensive imaging related to their original diagnosis. And so the the idea of a kid that's never been imaged and then going down the urinary tract and having various uh, investigations done like that, it, that's, that's not so much the case in, in our setting. And I think there's a, as I say, there's the um, the hassle and worry factor of it. There's the uncertainty, um, as you mentioned, Rachel, with with that waiting and waiting and waiting. And is the urine back yet? And if it's a bank holiday, does it take an extra day? And 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 what's that answer going to be? And the time that is taken uh, by all many parts of the healthcare team um, in doing it so the the lab teams in processing and working through the sample the physician doctor teams looking up the results on a frequent basis the nursing teams taking it and uh, and being part of that process and getting it all out there in the first place all of those are things that that could be saved if we take it away and don't chase down this line in a really routine and and potentially slightly obsessive way that doesn't give us any benefit it also then i think lets us focus on well which kids do we take it on and which do we pay more attention to in terms of really thinking are they getting these problems and if they are maybe because we're doing it in a more focused way and a bit more thoughtful maybe that on drives us into thinking how might we prevent it for these particular children um, going forwards Uh, and a further cause uh, for us to do some investigation and some research perhaps Uh, but it might open up that and then reduce the morbidity of those in different ways than this paper directly applies to. Yeah there's there's those knock-on effects uh, as you say uh, Bob because if you're focusing on something you don't need to focus on then you can't focus on something that you do need to focus on Mm. Uh, there's only finite time Mm. so people are listening to this uh, podcast what would you tell them to do tomorrow in this context yes uh, (laughs) absolutely you've got to get up in the morning make sure you get out there and get some exercise um uh, but when you meet your your febrile neutropenia person that comes in if they've got urinary tract symptoms then definitely take a urine sample Uh, absolutely don't believe the dip if it's got no white cells in it it's got no white cells in it. That is not a problem. Uh, send it off for culture and treat pending those results. But if the kid doesn't have urinary tract symptoms and isn't somebody that's got a stent in place or has had your kidneys manipulated in some way through their journey um, up to this point, then then don't take the sample. Don't waste your time, theirs and everybody else's. And work to get your local guidance, perhaps dropping the routine urine culture as part of the febrile neutropenia workup and move it into a if specific symptoms sort of area of the febrile neutropenia guidance. Um, Way, way, way back in the last millennium ago, there was a similar sort of thing that we used to do with chest x-rays and every kid with 
uh, febrile neutropenia got a chest x-ray done regardless of the time regardless of the symptoms and they all had it done because there might be this sort of hidden chest infection that we didn't know about and similar sorts of studies were done, pulling them together and then evidence synthesis bringing that together. Uh, and that, that fed into the national and international guidance that said, don't do it. it, it it's not going to help anybody. But if you think they've got something going on in their chest, do it then. And it moved out of the routine and into the focused or specific investigations. And, and in doing this, in, in sort of fine tuning our understanding and moving from a block approach that everybody needs everything we we can appreciate and understand the situation better we can treat people more like the individuals and the presentations that they are at any one point and we really can get that balance of of maximum benefit from doing stuff and minimum harm from doing unnecessary stuff without missing things without being in a situation where we've caused them harm by not doing a thing uh, I'm, I'm sure that many people already sort of fundamentally believe that doing more isn't always doing better. And this, I think, is a good example of that sort of thing in practice. Thanks, Bob. You're welcome. Thank you very much for inviting us. It was a pleasure. Thank you for listening. We publish regular podcasts about some of the best content of archives of disease in childhood. The papers discussed in ADC Spotlight will be available free of charge for a month after the podcast episode's release. If you don't want to miss us, please subscribe to your preferred platform to get the podcast directly to your device each month. We'd also like to hear from you, so please leave us a review on the Archives of Disease and Childhood podcast page on iTunes. Thank you, and until next month. <laughs>